Our next speaker is well known to the residency program. She just graduated last year, and that's uh, Dr. Maha Sami, who is, where is she? Is she here? Thank you. Please excuse him. I know that he hasn't always been pleasant, but know that all of us deeply appreciate his care. Tears slowly trickled down Marie's face, her voice intermittently choking between words. This was not the ending that she or her husband of nearly 50 years had anticipated. As she gently reached for his hand, his furrowed expression began to soften. Dr. V, a well-respected pediatrician from Mexico and the charismatic patriarch of his family, was dying. There's a certain terrible and perhaps ironic truth that we as physicians will inevitably become patients. We too are not immune from the scourges that diseases can lay bare. But in such circumstances, do our experiences as clinicians impact our approach to when we become sick? What do we do when healers need healing? Dr. V had noted a few years ago that he was becoming increasingly short of breath. After being evaluated by both a cardiologist and pulmonologist, he was reportedly diagnosed with IPF. When one of his daughters moved to Sacramento, he and his wife followed suit, hoping to split time between grandchildren in two different countries. But in October 2017, he became progressively dyspneic and was admitted to UC Davis. Here, he was formally diagnosed with hypersensitivity pneumonitis and not IPF. Three months later in January, a bout of coronavirus severely debilitated him. He was admitted to the MICU for acute hypoxic respiratory failure, initially necessitating BiPAP. In spite of aggressive treatment and high-dose steroids, he failed to show significant improvement and acquiesced to hospice in the hopes to go home. But given his dependency on high-flow nasal cannula, home was impractical, and consequently, he opted for comfort care measures in the hospital. There's an adage that doctors can be the worst patients, and certainly treating Dr. V was not without his challenges. A niece who worked as an ENT physician had diagnosed him with an ear infection and insisted on treatment. Conversations about lung transplantation were not a one-and-done deal. There were repeat discussions between the patient, primary, and pulmonary team regarding this infeasible option. The patient himself, somewhat used to doing things his own way, continued to insist on IV steroids rather than oral options as he felt the latter would lead to a higher risk of stomach ulcers. In an effort to combat his profound tachypnea, morphine was recommended frequently, but he was highly reluctant to use it. To him, a slow suffocation was preferable to a delirious and confused mind. Though Dr. V had endorsed to multiple providers that he had lived a good life and acknowledged the terminal nature of his illness, he understood his fate but had difficulty accepting it. And who could blame him? His loving children called him the treasure of their family. He was a strong father figure to his niece when his own brother passed away. He continued to play that pivotal role with many of his grandchildren. At the forefront of his mind, however, was his loyal and compassionate wife, Marie. There were still more memories to make and precious time to spend together. But there was also this gnawing sensation born out of guilt and deep concern. Could she manage without him? And who would care for her? How could he let go and embrace the terrifying pain of a final separation when so many depended on him? Dr. V had been in the hospital for at least 40 days when I first took over his care. He was on the floors for several weeks, tethered to high-flow nasal cannula. Though adamantly DNR, DNI, even from the start of his ICU stay, the use of high flow while actively on comfort care measures was somewhat contradictory, as arguably this was life support too. But I found myself surprisingly stifled and unable to approach this discussion. Throughout training, death began to feel routine. I had pronounced scores of patients and counseled numerous families regarding goals of care. Somehow, though, I was incapable of relaying this candor when I entered his room. 
Perhaps there was a sense of timidity associated in caring for a physician more seasoned than myself. Perhaps I felt it condescending, if not cruel, to discuss death and withdrawal of care to a man who was well aware of this reality for the past 40 days. But ultimately, my silence was due to a recognition that I too could be in Dr. V's place. At the start of my own career, I was treating a man at the end of his. It was an uncomfortable confrontation of my own mortality. I recognized that in the same position, I too would have significant difficulty in withdrawing care. During my morning rounds, Dr. V reported he always felt well in spite of his profound breathlessness. It was evident that he wanted some measure of peace and time to himself, and in remaining silent, I too thought I was honoring this. The day before his death, he became notably more tachypnic and somnolent. He was fully maxed out on high flow and saturating only in the mid-80s. His niece and daughter became concerned that he developed pneumonia and insisted on treatment, hoping to stave off what we all knew to be inevitable. After much discussion, I agreed to a brief trial of antibiotics, provided that we could begin scheduled morphine. In the afternoon, Dr. V further decompensated. When the nurses entered his room, they found his niece alone and bagging her uncle. As they rusted the ambo bag away, she began to initiate chest compressions in between tears. When I entered the room, she began to cry, intubate him, intubate him, please, please, he's like my father. As the alarms rang and more and more ancillary staff entered for assistance, I remembered that this chaotic descent into not-so-comfort care was not what Dr. V envisioned at his life's end. So I found my voice. I placed my hand into hers and said, there will be no more. He's dying and he needs you more than ever. When Marie arrived minutes later, a new kind of calm filled the room. She knew this day would come and dictated that there would be no further interventions. Her beloved had suffered enough. Instead, there would only be prayer and immense love as family gathered alongside him and peppered him with kisses. Near his ear, a phone where his son called from Mexico, racing to his local airport, saying over and over and over again, Papa, te amo. Siempre, siempre estarás en mi corazón. Papa, I love you. You will always, always be in my heart. Thank you.